0: my name is Leonie Hampson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of Schools, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. I was off for several weeks, and Stuart Chen Hayes of Lehman College filled in for me. Much thanks to Stuart, who did a great job. A whole lot has happened since we last spoke, and we will talk about that and more with our two very special guests. First of all, Jamal Bowman is a New York City educator who had an amazing landslide win to gain the nomination for a seat in Congress in New York's 16th district in Westchester and the Bronx. I'll be asking him what he thinks of the school reopening plan as a former principal and what he intends to do in Congress when he gets to D.C., Then I'll be talking to Randy Levine, Policy Director of Advocates for Children, to ask her what she thinks of the plan and if it does enough for students who are homeless and those with special needs. But first, the latest education news. Amid growing discontent among principals and threats of a teacher strike, the mayor, along with the chancellor and the unions, announced a new deal yesterday that would delay the reopening of our public schools for students. Instead of September 10th, students will now start school remotely on September 16th. All students will begin remote instruction on that day to be reintroduced to online learning. In-person learning in school buildings will begin for those blended learning students who have opted in on Monday, September 21st. Teachers will report to buildings on the 8th as originally for six days now of professional development to prepare for blended learning and to train for new safety protocols. Among the health and safety measures announced yesterday is that between 10 and 20% of all students and staff will be tested every month at every school, a huge undertaking. Along with the promise of centrally provided PPE mask wearing, social distancing, and classroom ventilation, this rigorous testing protocol led UFT President Michael Mulgrew to describe the new plan as, quote, the most aggressive policies and greatest safeguards of any school system in the U.S. Before today's announcement, uncertainty and chaos reigned supreme. The UFT was threatening a strike, and the CSA, the school administrator union, begged for a delay to ensure better preparation to ensure health, safety, and planning for instruction. Many principals agreed with the need for a delay, along with several teacher and parent groups. I'm sure there are still many concerns among teachers and parents as to the safety of this plan. And as I'll discuss a little later, the educational component. But now let's talk to our first guest, Jamal Bowman, former principal who was first on our show in March months before his lopsided victory in the September primary, where he unseated the longtime incumbent Elliot Engel and won the Democratic nomination for Congress in District 16 in the Bronx and Westchester. Jamal, are you there?
1: Yes, I am, Lainey. How are you? Good morning.
0: Good morning. Congratulations. What an amazing landslide victory you had. Did you expect that?
1: <laughs> I wouldn't say uh, I expected it. I knew we had a really good chance uh, to win. Uh, we had an amazing team and so much grassroots support uh, throughout the campaign. And we really, uh, our goal was to build deep, authentic relationships uh, with voters throughout the district uh, across the the time and space of the campaign. And we were able to do that and pull out a pretty, you know, pretty considerable victory. You know, we won by 16 points. Uh, We won in both the Bronx and Westchester. uh, And we won in in parts of the Bronx where people didn't think we had a shot. So, um, you know, yeah, we uh, we expected to win, but not by this much.
0: And one question before we get to more details of your win. um, Do you even have a Republican opponent at this point?
1: Uh, we do not have a Republican opponent uh, at this point. I think there's someone <laughs> on the cons- <laughs> I think there's someone on the conservative party line that's in, but no Republican component. So uh, we like our chances on November third.
0: Okay. And before we get to more more issues around your cam- amazing campaign, which was brilliantly done, I, I just want to briefly ask you about the school reopening plan that was announced yesterday. Mm-hmm by the mayor, the DOE, and the unions. Do you have any thoughts?
1: You know, it's funny. I I felt personally, and my wife is a uh, third-grade teacher in the public schools, and and amongst my network, it was like a collective sigh of relief. Um, I was happy to see that that it was delayed, happy to see that it was a collaborative process, even though there was a lot of public pushing and pulling going on. Um, But I think that pushing and pulling was necessary. I mean, number one, we need to make sure our kids and teachers are safe. Uh, We want to, you know, we're talking about human life here. So we cannot cut corners or try to rush anything. So I'm happy there's a delay. I'm happy that teachers are getting extended professional development, both on the remote learning side and on the in-person learning side. And, you know, we got to get our, our our schools ready for this. I mean, you know, I used to work at MLK High School before becoming a principal. There are literally no windows in the classrooms, right? So you're not going to have the circulation mm-hmm. and ventilation that's needed. Um, but I'm happy uh, we put a pause on opening. I'm happy that it's collaborative. Um, and I actually stopped by my my old school yesterday just to say hello, and it seemed like uh, the custodians and the principals in the district are all working together to make sure our kids are safe as possible.
0: If you were still a principal, what do you think you'd be doing right now instead of talking to me?
1: You you know, Laney, as I left the building with someone I was interviewing for a chief of staff role, I said to her, I am so happy I am not a principal right now because I would be super uh-huh. stressed out. Um, if, I were, if I were still a principal, I wouldn't be talking to you. I would be in my building, probably crawling on the floor, looking at every corner and crevice to make sure ventilation in our classrooms were all set, uh, talking to the custodian, harassing the custodian, making sure... He did everything in his power to make sure our school was ready. And then figuring out this remote learning piece, you know, because remote learning, it's not perfect, um, but it can be uh, good for certain students. So you want to make sure that the remote learning is as quality as it can be, even though it can never replace a teacher. Um, So it would be I would be scrambling. I would be all over the place. My days would probably be about 6 a.m. to 8 p.m like I'm sure many of my colleagues, former colleagues are going through right now.
0: Yeah, the press conference yesterday, there was a lot of praise and admiration expressed for principals who have the hardest job in the world right now. I think of anybody Mm -hmm. and everybody has a hard job, but just the planning and the scheduling that has to go into what happens at the school level is going to be such a challenge. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. concerned with the agreement. I'll talk about this a little bit more later, which allows uh, the blended learning component um, when kids are online for class sizes to double up to 68 students per class. I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts about that.
1: Yeah. See, the the problem, you know, it's a gift and a curse, right? You can provide direct instruction, quote unquote, to large groups of, of kids at one time. Belaney, you and I both know the magic happens during the individualized component of instruction. Uh, the more one-on-one time you can have with kids, uh, the better. So, you know, I understand the, 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 the quote-unquote logic behind these large groups of kids, but how are we going to provide the one-on-one support and the follow-up support uh, for the child who has a question, for the child who is confused? Um, How is that going to be incorporated into uh, the remote learning component? Because it has to be. There has to be consistent Mm -hmm. one-on-one check-ins with our kids because in a Zoom call of 68 kids, uh, there's not enough time or space to answer questions as they come up. Um, So I'm very concerned about that. And, you know, the last thing I would say is, you know, even when we go back to school, class size is still a a tremendous issue. And, you know, the HEROES Act at at the federal level and other federal resources uh, can put us in a position where we can begin to look at class size uh, in a new light and with a new understanding that it's needed now more than ever ever in the age of COVID.
0: Absolutely. Now let's let's move to your amazing win. Uh, You mentioned that you won by 16 points when all the ballots were counted. Um, the, one of the biggest surprises in the race, is to me anyway, is that you did really well in Westchester as well as the Bronx. Do you know what the comparative figures were in those two areas?
1: I, I, I don't off the top of my head, um, but, but we did win Westchester, um, and even, you know, quote-unquote white Westchester, we did well in. You know, a lot of people forget that Yonkers, Mount Vernon, and New Rochelle are also a part of Westchester, so we did very well Great. in Yonkers um, and very well in Mount Vernon. But we did well in, quote, unquote, white Westchester as well. And, you know, that, that surprised a, a, a lot of people. And, you know, it was simply because, you know, we were, we were trying to listen and learn and connect with people on a human level. And, you know, whether you're white, black, Latinx, Asian, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Uh, We all want the same things. We want safety and security. We want great schools. We want an opportunity uh, for growth and development. We all care about issues of racial and economic justice. You know, it's a myth that white Mm -hmm. upper class and white wealthy people don't care about racial justice. That's not true. They do. Um, And because we centered those issues uh, throughout our campaign, uh, we were able to do very well uh, in all in all parts of of the district. We won the majority of the of the sections of the district. So, uh, you know, it was a tremendous tremendous showing.
0: And you did it despite the challenges of COVID. You managed to interact with people and listen to their concerns even if much of it was done remotely, which I really, I hope somebody, you or someone from your campaign really writes this up for the history books, because I think in so many ways it was an unprecedented effort and an unprecedented win, and I just hope we learn something from it for the future.
1: Yeah, it's so humbling, uh, Lainey. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's just so humbling on election night how many people came out to the polls yeah, just election night. It was just so humbling how many people came out to the polls uh, to, su- to support us and to vote. I mean, we tripled voter turnout overall uh, in this election, Incredible. triple turnout amongst young people and people of color. And, you know, people waited to vote for two to three hours online. So that that level of excitement for for primary uh, is just unprecedented. So, yes, we need to capture that learning and share it with others for sure. So now
0: let's get to what you want to do in D.C. um, in general, and especially in education, which is, you know, a special interest of the listeners of this show and a special interest of yours. First of all, um, what committees will you
1: ask to be appointed to? (laughs) So education and labor, of course, um, that's something I'm going to advocate for. I've already started advocating for uh, very publicly. Um subcommittees on early childhood within that committee is something I'm really interested in, uh, in addition to uh, transportation and infrastructure. Um, transportation is a huge issue uh, here in our district. Infrastructure is an issue here as well as across the country. Uh, so those are two um, committees I'm interested in. Also, ways and means, appropriations, um, you know, finance. Uh, those are other committees I'm looking at, but those committees are generally – slated for more senior members. But uh, education and labor, transportation and infrastructure, I think I have a shot.
0: You mentioned at the beginning of the show that you were interviewing people for chief of staff. Are you still staffing up for for, the, for your office?
1: A- absolutely. You know, where, where it's early, which is good. Um, so we want to hire the chief uh, first and foremost, and then have that person be a part of hiring hiring the rest of the the most senior staff. Uh, we would love to enter Washington in January, assuming we can win in November with the majority of our staff so we can hit the ground running. Uh, so we're trying to get as clear as possible on our mission as an office, our strategic plan, so that that can align to the, the people that we are hiring for the office.
0: And so tell me about what your issues and policies are, especially in the area of education. What are you going to be pushing for? I mean. We know that our schools need more funding. We know that the infrastructure of our schools needs more funding, and it's been a special disappointment to many of us that, you know, the Congress has not come up with the money and we still don't even know whether they will before, you know, September or October to help our schools reopen in a safe and productive way. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that, and what are some of the other issues that you're going to be advocating for um, when you get to D.C.?
1: Absolutely. So even prior to the pandemic, we called for quadrupling uh, Title I uh, funding at the federal level from its current levels. Uh, we called for fully funding uh, IDEA, which is the federal uh, special education law. We've called for funding our schools not based on local property taxes but more based on student need in terms of economic and and social need as well. We've also called for the building of 25,000 community schools across the country uh, in alignment with j Brown's work and so many grassroots organizations work across the country calling for the building of the community schools. Um, but we also, you know, and you know this, Laney, about me, you know, I look at education holistically, and I don't like to talk about schools in isolation. I like to call, talk about schools as connected to the other infrastructure when, in the community. So when we talk about universal health care, uh, universal childcare, early childhood learning, uh, housing as a human right, environmental justice, uh, these are all areas I would like to focus on as well because they all interact with our schools in a holistic way that really meets the needs of children and families. Uh, So our approach is going to be holistic. Our policy is going to be interconnected and interrelated, Um, and education is going to be the center of that, but it can't be education in isolation. It has to work with housing policy. There's been some bold policy introduced by Elizabeth Warren, Ilhan Omar, and others, Environmental justice through a Green New Deal, um, healthcare justice through Medicare for all, uh, jobs program. We're really going to be focusing hard on a federal jobs guarantee um, and raising the minimum federal minimum wage from $725 to $15 an hour. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do. A lot of the work is already being done. So I plan to support the work being done while bringing our own uh, New Deal structure for public education into the conversation.
0: That's great. Um, I know that uh, many of our listeners and many advocates across the state of New York are also very interested in your views on um, high-stakes testing, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. what, what if, it, if any, you plan to do in that area or advocate for in that area.
1: Come on, Laney. All your listeners already know me. They know what I'm about when it comes to high-stakes testing. No, so the, we,
0: we have a very broad listener <laughs> listeners in WBAI. Not all of them know exactly what your views are on testing.
1: Got it, got it. So uh, I've spent my entire career uh, pushing back on our use of high-stakes standardized testing in public schools, particularly in grades three through eight. Uh, there's absolutely no research that supports, uh, testing kids in grades three through eight, uh, as a, as a strategy towards closing the, the achievement gap or building, uh, the literacy and math skills of our students. Um, so how we do standardized testing in our public schools is all wrong. Um, I do support, uh, grade band testing, you know, maybe a snapshot in the fourth grade, snapshot in the seventh grade. One day bumping the road, 45 minutes in and out, as opposed to what we currently have now, which is kids as young as eight sitting for nine hours of testing, which is completely unacceptable. And because it's high stakes, we're connecting it to teacher evaluation, which leads to teachers teaching to the test and true learning not happening. So we need to scrap that complete plan and focus more on project based learning. Uh, focus on focus more on a Montessori approach to education, Reggio Emilio approach, the multiple intelligence, bringing in the arts, bringing in drama, bringing in uh, you know science and environmental justice and social justice into our schools. Focus on learning and aligning uh, our curriculum to the passion and needs and purpose of students and the needs of the community as well. um similar to what other countries like Finland and others do. Uh, That's what we need to bring here uh, in our country, and that's what I'm going to be fighting for at the federal level as well.
0: So one of the many important initiatives that got cut short this year when the COVID pandemic hit was a series of uh, public meetings and discussions around the use of the Regents exam, which are our high-stakes exams in New York City, that I think students are required to pass about five of them to graduate from high school. Uh, did you were you participating in any of those meetings? Do you have a position on the Regents exams either way?
1: Um, I did not get a chance to participate because it was uh, in the middle of the campaign, and, and uh, I didn't give an opportunity to to share thoughts or give testimony. Um, yes, I have a position. So the New York State Board of Regents did a study. Uh, to look at what our college is really looking for in terms of, you know, freshman entry uh, into their universities. And no one is looking at the regents exams. They're not. They're looking at uh, mm-hmm. report card grades. They're looking at GPA. They're looking at um, uh, AP uh, accomplishments. They're looking at extracurricular activities um, and volunteer uh, opportunities that students have done. So if colleges aren't looking at Regents exams, there's absolutely no need for us to have them, especially five of them. Um, If you want to, you know, implement an English Regents exam, I understand kids have to be at a certain level of literacy to be prepared for college. I know the consortia in New York State, New York City as well, uh, you know, they provide the English Regents but not the other four. Um, Again, we're in the 21st century. We need to pivot towards uh, education system that works in the 21st century century, not one that works for the industrial revolution. So, I support getting rid of the Regents exams uh, because colleges aren't looking at them, and again, they're not. They do not prepare kids for what kids have to, uh, th- what they have to, the burden they have to bear in, in college. You know, the soft skills, the the emotional intelligence, the social intelligence. Those are the areas we need to focus on in our k to twelve schools, not the consistent paper to pen, paper and pencil testing uh, that we 've been doing for seems like a hundred years
0: so that's great. Um, our special focus, the focus of my organization, class size matters, as you know, is class size and school overcrowding. The situation is so bad here in New York City, more than a half a million students are in overcrowded schools according to the DOE's own data, which means for this year, to achieve proper social distancing, many students will only be able to attend school in person one or two days a week. Um, I'm hoping that you might consider drafting legislation or, or taking the issues of school overcrowding and class size also, to the federal level um, in terms of encouraging or helping to fund schools throughout the country, because many of our large urban school districts have the same sort of problems, and I think especially disadvantage um, um, kids of color and and kids who have special needs. So I'm wondering if that's an issue that you might consider focusing on as well.
1: Uh, Yes, yes, and yes. And, Lainey, I will not be drafting the legislation. We will be drafting the legislation. (laughs) You are going to be working with me to draft it because this is pretty much your life's work. And everything that I do in Congress, I'm going to be working with those on the ground, those on the front lines, who have been doing the work uh, at a grassroots level for for many, many years. Uh, You have the expertise, and you can inform uh, my position, and the position of everyone in Congress on this issue. And just quickly, I want to say, you know, when we look at the well-funded schools uh, in the suburbs, when we look at the well-funded uh, private schools across the city, state, and country, you, know, you have class sizes, you know, you might have 20 kids in a class, but you'll have two teachers mm-hmm. and an assistant providing support uh, to kids at a, at a, you know, at a personal individual level and in a, at a small group level. But our kids in our, in our cities and our urban centers go to underfunded schools with sometimes as many as 40 in a class, and they're never allowed uh, to get – or never able to get the individualized attention that they deserve. This is racism, institutional racism built into the system, because if you're black, brown, or poor, you're more likely to go to an underfunded school and more likely to be in a class of 40 students. Uh, it's completely – Right. unacceptable, it's completely deplorable, and as we think about education outcomes over the lifespan, uh, it's no wonder why we continue to have the quote-unquote so-called achievement gaps. So, uh, so yes, Lainey, absolutely. You know I'm with you in that fight, and I will take that fight to Congress uh, when I get there.
0: Well, thank you so much. I think we're all inspired by your win. We're inspired By your activism and your understanding of these important education issues, which I think not enough people in Congress are really committed to. So I hope to that, you know, that that uh, you will find success and that we will continue this conversation and that after you get your feet weighed in Congress. Uh, you'll come back to our show and, and let us know how we can work with you and help you achieve the goals of better education for all kids and especially those in New York City. Uh, thank you for being here.
1: Of course, my pleasure, Lainey. Thank you.
0: And talk to you soon, I hope. Thank you again, Jamal. This is Leonie Hampson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI-FM 99.5 or WBAI.org. Our show is available as a podcast if you missed the live version. But in any case, please consider becoming a WBAI buddy to talk out of school by logging into GiveToWBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Now, in a minute, I'll bring in Randy Levine, the Policy Director of Advocates for Children, to hear from her what she thinks of the DOE's new reopening plan, including whether the DOE is doing enough for homeless students and those with special needs who are especially vulnerable and poorly served by online learning. There are many other ongoing education concerns that have not been solved, I think, in the new plan, including how remote learning will be improved from the totally inadequate version offered students last spring and how staffing will be possible, given that the DOE has now said that each school has to have three teachers for each greater subject. A blended learning on-site teacher to work in schools on the day schools will... Uh, Students will attend classes in person for those who have opted in, a blended learning remote teacher to work with the same students on the days that they are home, and yet another fully remote teacher in charge of teaching students who chose 100 percent online education. These positions seem difficult, if not impossible, for many schools to fill, especially given the staffing freeze and budget cuts imposed by DOE in July. The DOE has promised to help schools that are understaffed by sending them more teachers or reassigning administrators and specialists who don't ordinarily teach but who are certified to do so. But so far, this hasn't happened. Another glaring problem that I mentioned earlier is that to create the smaller classes of 10 to 12 students necessary for social distancing in schools – DOE and the UFT have agreed to allow the blended learning online classes to double in class size and grow to 64 to 68 students. I was quoted in the the New York Post on Sunday saying that this is a recipe for disaster. Many teachers and experts say there should be even smaller classes when going online to keep students engaged and to allow for sufficient feedback and interaction. But now I'd like to bring on Randy Levine of Advocates for Children. Randy, are you there?
2: Yes, good morning. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, great. Thanks Thanks so much for being here. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about Advocates for Children and what issues your organization focuses on?
2: Sure. Advocates for Children focuses on helping students in New York who face barriers to school success, with a particular focus on students from low-income backgrounds. We have an education helpline that parents, students, and professionals can call with any questions or concerns they have about the New York City school system. And then we have attorneys and advocates on staff who can provide more in-depth advocacy or if needed legal representation to a small number of low-income families who are hitting roadblocks in getting their children the educational services they need. We also do webinars and have many Know Your Rights guides available on our website, covering a variety of education topics from special education to school admissions, to school discipline, to the rights of English language learners. And then based on our work on the ground, helping thousands of individual students and families each year, we identify systemic barriers and advocate for system-wide solutions.
0: So we will uh, include uh, links to Advocates for Children website and helpline on the WBAI site and also on the podcast site so uh, parents and others can can know how to reach um, them. I know that special needs students and homeless students are two of the special concerns and priorities of your organization. And I, I recently learned that these students make up a substantial part of the system. Um, uh, roughly 200,000 New York City students have disabilities and 114,000 are homeless. Is that really the case?
2: That's right, and I appreciate your raising these numbers. It's so important to recognize the size of these student populations. Often in education policy conversations, students with disabilities and students who are homeless are an afterthought, but you can't make education work better overall in New York City unless you're thinking about students with disabilities, students who are homeless, among other student populations like English language learners. And just to think a little more about these numbers, 114,000 students in New York City experienced homelessness at some point last year. That means that one out of every 10 students in New York City schools experienced homelessness and more than 200,000 students with disabilities. That means that one out of every five students in New York City schools is a student with a disability.
0: And and how many of the homeless students are in shelters approximately?
2: Over the course of the last school year, approximately 30,000 students spent time in our city shelters. Wow.
0: So before we get to some of these issues in more detail, what what was your overall reaction to the plan that was announced yesterday by the mayor um, and the unions, and especially as a particular... The question of blended learning is an ongoing issue that we're very concerned about. Um, Michael, are you there? Randy, are you there?
2: I just returned.
0: OK. All right. Great, because I had I, <laughs> I don't have the background and knowledge that you have. We really need you on this call. <laughs> so we were cut off uh, when. Um, I was asking you about what you thought of the plan announced yesterday, especially as it pertains to the students that you focus on.
2: Great, sorry about that. I'm not sure uh, how I lost you. Um, But I should start by saying that we know that so many educators and school staff members are working extremely hard right now to prepare for the school year and truly appreciate that work. At this point, there are many unanswered questions And we really need the city to take these extra 10 days before in-person learning begins to work urgently on addressing these issues. To give just one of the many examples that disproportionately impact students with disabilities and students who are homeless, bus service for Mm -hmm. students whose parents are choosing in-person learning. More than 50,000 students with disabilities and thousands of students who are homeless rely on bus service to get to school And these students have a legal right to transportation, but the Department of Education currently has no contracts with bus companies in place to bring these students to school. We need the DOE to get bus service in place. If there's no bus, many of the families that Advocates for Children serve will not be able to get to school, even the families who are choosing in-person learning.
0: So basically, what you're telling us is that the families have not heard anything about what the bus schedule is going to be or even whether they're going to have access to busing next year. I know that the DOE has said that they will provide busing to those students uh, with special needs who. Um, it's mandated for in their IEPs or their individualized education plans. But my understanding is there's still also a lot of uncertainty about how that's going to be scheduled and also a lot of uncertainty about how general education kids are going to get busing, if any. I think yesterday at the press conference, they said they are drawing up contracts with the bus company still. But as you as you as you said, there's no information publicly available about exactly Who's going to get busing and what the schedules are going to be and even what the safety precautions on the buses are going to be, which is another huge concern of of many people. Um, Now, while all students are, I believe, not well served by remote learning, we know that students with disabilities and those who are homeless have a particular need for in-person instruction. Can you talk a little bit about why
2: Yes. And before I do that, I should just note that I think there's also uncertainty about when bus service will start for any students, including the students who have a legal Mm -hmm. right to bus service, which is why we need the department of education to use these 10 days and do whatever they need to do to get bus service in place for students who need it. Remote learning Mm -hmm. was hard for so many students and families, but it was harder for some than for others. And this period of remote learning magnified inequities that existed long before the pandemic. We heard from families of students with certain disabilities who said that remote learning just wasn't working for their children. Their children had difficulty sitting in front of a screen and focusing or had trouble absorbing the material through a screen in the way they could in person. And there are some services like physical therapy that are extremely difficult to provide to a child over the internet. I think in remote learning, there's also been a general assumption that students in middle school and high school, and maybe even older elementary school students can do remote learning independently. But for some students with disabilities, the ability to participate in remote learning relied entirely on having a parent who could sit with the student and assist them and understood how to navigate the remote learning device, was able to understand assignments that were in English. So it was very difficult. And you know, before turning to students who are homeless, I want to note that students who are homeless are more likely than their peers to have special education needs. So although we're talking about these two groups of students separately, there is overlap and some of the most troubling cases we heard about included cases of children with disabilities living in shelter trying to get the education and services that they need. For students who are homeless, there have been problems involving space, technology, and the need for adult support. I mean, just picture a small room where multiple children at different grade levels and ages and needs are sitting on the floor trying to get their iPads to work with mixed success. And I can quickly name a few of the outstanding issues for students who are homeless that were problems in the spring and that need to be addressed in the fall. So first of all, while we appreciate that the Department of Education distributed iPads with cell phone data that don't rely on a family having Wi-Fi access, there are shelters in New York City where no children can participate in remote learning because the iPads don't work due to inadequate cell phone reception. And there are other shelters where the connectivity is limited. Another concern under city policy Students under the age of 18 are not allowed to remain in shelter units without a parent. But right now, there's no child care plan for days of remote learning when parents need to work. We're glad that the city is developing new learning bridges, child care programs, but there's limited capacity. We don't yet know who's eligible, where they'll be located, how students in shelter would get there. And what we do know is that they're meant for children from 3K through eighth grade. So high school students are currently ineligible. And then even in shelters where there was connectivity, we don't have data unfortunately because the Department of Education has not released disaggregated data. But we're hearing anecdotally that a high number of children in shelter did not participate in remote learning in the spring. And we think that's due to a variety of barriers and there hasn't been enough work done to address those barriers, and that is, of course, very troubling. We don't want to see a repeat this fall of what we saw last spring. And I've already mentioned busing, but for parents who want their children to return to school, bus service for students who are homeless is a critical component of the school reopening plan.
0: And it's legally required. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. Students with disabilities who have transportation mandated by their special education plans, as well as students who are homeless and students in foster care have a legal right to transportation to and from school.
0: And so these children in shelters um, are not going to be allowed, even if they had access to the Internet, even if they had the capability to log on themselves and keep focused on their school school work and on their classes they cannot remain in shelters if their parents aren't there at the same time is that what you're telling us
2: that is current city policy and we're very worried about how this is going to play out at a time when parents are being asked to return to work and when parents have other obligations including they may have one child who's going to school on a certain day and Need to help get them there, or they may have social service appointments related to the housing search and the job search, even if they're not working full time at this point.
0: I know a letter went out earlier in the year saying, um, urging the mayor to give priority to the rec centers, which were the schools that were open over the summer um, with adult supervision. Um, for homeless students. Did they ever respond to that letter, um, either favorably or not?
2: We've been in conversations with the Department of Education and City Hall since we, along with 30 organizations, sent a letter to the mayor saying that the city needs a plan for students who are homeless and making several recommendations, including prioritizing access to the new Learning Bridges child care programs for students who are homeless. The Department of Education has indicated to us that they are seriously considering giving some form of priority to students in shelters so that some of them can access the childcare programs. but we don't have any definite answers at this point. And we know that there's a capacity challenge. So even if there is some form of priority, we're not sure how many students in shelter will be enrolled and also still unsure whether they'll be located near shelters and how students will get there. Um, So we are concerned. And as I mentioned, I think the city has made clear that these programs will only serve students through the eighth grade. We have asked the city to expand them to high school students living in shelter.
0: So, Given that there are all these unanswered questions and real serious concerns, um, if you were Chancellor, Randy, um, and you could design a system for school reopening this year, what kind of plan would you put together? <laughs> you know, there, there
2: are no easy solutions here, and we definitely want to acknowledge that this is a very complicated problem. We wish that the school reopening plan had focused more attention on the needs of the students who struggled the most with remote learning and had prioritized in-person learning for students who struggled with remote learning, whose families want them to be in school. At Advocates for Children, we hear from families who are not comfortable sending their children back to school and are choosing full-time remote learning for their children And we hear from other families who are desperate to have their children back in school. At this point with school starting on September 21st, we think the city needs to designate a point person who can work across agencies to resolve the barriers we're seeing for students who are homeless and get every child the technology space and support they need to engage in learning this year. The issues we discussed today involve multiple city agencies, the Department of Education, the Department of Homeless Services, which runs the city's shelters. The Department of Youth and Community Development is developing the Learning Bridges childcare Programs. The Human Resources Administration runs the domestic violence shelters. So we think that someone needs to be in charge of working with the different agencies to figure out how we're going to make this work. If we know there's a shelter where there's no connectivity, we need to figure out what the solution is because it's not an option to just have children continue not learning this year. In addition, more broadly, we think that the city needs to make sure that every student has access to online learning and that remote instruction is as effective as possible. And making sure every child has an iPad or some other remote learning device with access to internet or data and good connectivity is step one, but then we need to go beyond that and make sure that there is assistance for families in using those iPads. And then we wanna make sure that remote learning is as effective as possible. So we'd like to see the city be more creative. One idea is pairing educators who have training in evidence-based literacy instruction with students who are having trouble with reading. Uh, we can do that now that we're not constrained by the four walls of the school building. Let's get the educators who have that expertise to work with the students who need it and make use of this time of remote learning. As mentioned, we need to make sure that transportation and childcare are in place. And then for students with disabilities, we have a lot of work to do. We want to see individualized plans developed for every student with a disability with input from their parents, including on issues like which services are being delivered in person and which services are being delivered remotely for students on blended learning. These are questions that haven't been answered yet. We want to make sure information is communicated to families in a language they can understand and that there's a meaningful plan to support English language learners, as well as a plan for mental health support. So there's a lot of work to do here, and we have a number of recommendations. We issued a report with Key issues to address related to special education and recommendations that we have and have been working with a number of organizations on recommendations related to students who are homeless and students with disabilities, as well as students in foster care, English language learners, and um, students who have mental
0: health needs. And so now that the, there seems to be an agreement with the unions, perhaps the DOE can work more productively in collaboration with advocacy groups like yours. It seems to me a, a, a real shame that you have all this expertise and all these great ideas and you have not been intimately involved in the planning process for this year. Is that, is that a, a reasonably correct, accurate statement?
2: We think that the needs of students who are homeless and students with disabilities have not gotten the attention they deserve. And we would like to continue partnering with the city and with the Department of Education and the other agencies involved to ensure that there are solutions in place, hopefully for the start of the school year with this extra time. I think you're right that there has been Um, understandably so much push and pull about when schools are opening. And we definitely understand the concerns that have been expressed and that there were so many unanswered questions. Um, Hopefully now that the unions and the mayor have announced the plan for school reopening, we can address some of these questions that have gotten less attention, but are really critical to student learning this year.
0: So if parents want to keep in touch with Advocates for Children and or help you support your advocacy efforts, um, do you have any suggestions about what they can do?
2: Sure. First, let me give our helpline number. Our education helpline Mm -hmm. number is 866-427-6033. And it's open from Monday to Thursday, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So we definitely encourage any parent, student, or professional who has a question or concern about the school reopening plan or any issue involving New York City schools, please give us a call. We'll do an in-depth phone call with you and try to give you the information you need and point you in the right direction. Um, And we'll talk to families in their language. So. We would love to hear from families who speak a variety of different languages. On our website, www.advocatesforchildren.org, we have dozens of guides and Know Your Rights fact sheets, and during COVID-19, we've also taken our workshops online, so we now have a series of Know Your Rights webinars, and those are continuing over the coming days and weeks. And we encourage everyone to sign up for our email list where we'll provide important updates and also send out action alerts on ways that you can partner with us in making sure that the New York City Department of Education is focusing on students with disabilities, students who are homeless, English language learners, and other populations of students who tend to not get the support and attention that they need and also to call upon our state and federal elected leaders to ensure that schools have the resources they need, which is certainly a key concern right now as well.
0: Right. Well, Randy, I just wanted to thank you for all the work that you and others at Advocates for Children are doing. Thank you for being here. Um, unfortunately, we didn't really have time to get into the whole issue with English language learners, but I'd like to do a show on that as well. And I wonder whether you might come back um, maybe with some others and, and help us learn more about that issue. And also be more once, than... uh, the school. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, we would be more than happy Sorry. to do that. OK, and also once the school year has begun, I'd really love to hear your observations from the parents who are calling in with problems and also just directly um, what the continuing issues are and whether they've, the DOE and the mayor have um, in any way effectively addressed the special needs of kids with disabilities and homeless um, students to make sure that they get the best possible education under these unprecedented circumstances. Um, thank you again for being here. I really do appreciate your work.
2: Thank you. We appreciate your work as well, and thank you for bringing attention to these important issues.
0: So um, I've been talking to Randy Levine, Pol- Policy Director for Advocates for Children. Um, we will have links on our website to the to the Advocates website, as well as um, the, the hot line in case you didn't write it down, and some of the other information that she mentioned, as well as an excellent op-ed that was co-authored by their executive director, Kim Sweet, about the special challenges and needs of homeless students who are already um, facing so many other challenges. Uh, This is Leonie Hampson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio, our show is available also as a podcast if you missed the live version. But in any case, please do consider becoming a WBA buddy to talk out of school by logging on to give to or by calling 516-620-3602. We really do appreciate your support. I'm also reaching out to some of our listeners to find out if there are specific issues or guests that you'd like to, us to have on our show this year. And if you do have such ideas, please email us at info at classsizematters.org. Again, that's info at classsizematters.org. I'll be back next week on September 10th with two more terrific guests. Until then, please be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening in. Your right down
1: to the, bone, the guy behind you will leave you alone.